Good evening. I'm Lisa German, University Librarian and Dean of Libraries here at the University of Minnesota. And I'm delighted to welcome you to the first of our three-part Friends Forum series, Amplifying Black Narratives. The University Libraries is a proud partner with our Friends of the University Libraries in presenting the Friends Forum. And I'd like to thank you, say thank you to our wonderful friends. The Friends Forum, a series for curious minds, showcases intriguing experts speaking about topics relevant to our community. This evening, our panel will examine the role of community-based archives and university collections in preserving the past, present, and future of Black art and culture. We're excited to have our panelists share their expertise and their experiences with us. We ask that you remain muted throughout the program, and you'll notice two buttons at the bottom of your screen. Please use the chat button if you have technical questions, and the Q&A button if you have questions for our panelists. You may submit your questions at any time, and we'll get to as many as possible after the discussion. Before we begin, I'd like to share a perspective that is important to all of us. The University of Minnesota Twin Cities is built within the traditional homelands of the Dakota people. It's important to not acknowledge the people on whose land we live, learn, and work. As we seek to improve and strengthen our relations with tribal nations, we acknowledge that these words are not enough. We must ensure that our institution provides support, resources, and programs that increase access to all aspects of higher education for American Indian students, staff, faculty, and community members. And now I'd like to welcome our moderator for this evening, Cecily Marcus. Cecily is the Director of Collections at the Minnesota Historical Society. From 2009 to 2021, Cecily served the university and community as the curator of the Givens Collection of African American Literature, the Performing Arts Archives, and the Upper Midwest Literary Archives. She is also the founding principal investigator of Umbra Search African American History and award-winning initiatives that brings together hundreds of thousands of African American primary source materials from over a thousand libraries, archives, and cultural heritage organizations. Now I'm gonna turn it over to you, Cecily. Thank you. Thank you, Dean German, and good evening, everyone. Um, it's, it's great to be here. Thank you all for coming to the first University of Minnesota Libraries event for the new academic year. Uh, I'm Cecily Marcus, Director of Collections at the Minnesota Historical Society, and it's great to be back here as moderator and a privilege to be in conversation with our esteemed panelists, Dr. Squ Catherine Squires, Jojo Bell and Dr. Tia Simone Gardner, two of whom I've had the pleasure of working with. After brief introductions, we'll have an opportunity to hear a little bit about the work of each scholar artist activist and their experiences in and reflections on the power or poverty of archives in amplifying black narratives past, present and future. 
I've prepared several questions that I hope will spark a rich dialogue among them, and you'll have the opportunity to pose your questions to the panelists by typing them into the Q&A box. Please feel free to ask your questions throughout the conversation and we'll get to them uh, closer to the end. So it's my honor to introduce our panelists. Dr. Catherine R. Squires is Professor of Communication Studies at the University of Minnesota. She's the author of many books, including The Post-Racial Mystique and editor of Dangerous Discourses, Feminism, Gun Violence, and Civic Life. As a 2017 to 2019 Bush Fellow, Dr. Squires focused on understanding intergenerational trauma, culturally relevant healing practices, embodied story sharing, and movement. She has engaged in long-term partnerships with Gordon Hark Parks High School and the Hallie Q. Brown Center Community Center in St. Paul. Dr. Squires received her BA from Occidental College and her PhD from Northwestern University. Jokita Jojo Bell is the founder, executive director, and director of exhibitions and programming for the African American Interpretive Center of Minnesota, AAICM. As she wrote in Minnesota Women's Press in early 2021, she, quote, founded the African American Interpretive Center of Minnesota to help address the dearth of exhibitions and historical programming about Black Minnesota history. The mission is simple, she writes, share Black Minnesota history through exhibitions and events. Her leadership has led to collaborative programming with the Minnesota Historical Society and the Minnesota Museum of American Art, among others. In 2019, Ms. Bell curated the Builders exhibition for AAICM, named one of the top 10 exhibitions of the year by the Star Tribune. Currently, Ms. Bell is writing a book provisionally titled Red Stained, The Life of Hilda Sims, scheduled to be published by the Minnesota Historical Society Press in 2022. Ms. Bell received her BA from Hamlin University and her MA in History from Louisiana State University. And Dr. Tia Simone Gardner is an interdisciplinary artist, educator, and Black feminist scholar who works primarily with drawing, still and moving images, archives, and space. Dr. Gardner grew up in Fairfield, Alabama, where she also received her BA in art and art history from the University of Alabama. In, 20, in 2009, she received her MFA in interdisciplinary practices and time-based media from the University of Pennsylvania. She's participated as a studio fellow and Whitney Independent Study Pro and with, Whit with the Whitney Independent Study Program at the Whitney Museum of American Art as a fellow for the Givens Collection of African American Literature and as an invited guest artist at national and international artist residencies. She's the recipient of the McKnight Visual Artist Fellowship and a 2020 Smithsonian Smithsonian Artist Research Fellowship, among others. Some of Dr. Gardner's most recent work includes the installation Unvessel at Lilydale Regional Park, hosted by the Minnesota Museum of American Art. Dr. Gardner has served as a mentor and teacher at Juxtaposition Arts, and she received her PhD from the University of Minnesota and is Assistant Professor of Media Studies at McAllister College. Thank you all for being here. Dr. Squires will first introduce her work, followed by Ms. Bell and then Dr. Gardner. Welcome, Dr. Squires. Hi. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us tonight for this conversation. Um, I'll just say a few words about some of the work I've done uh, locally in archives. It's actually an interesting conversation to be having for me. It 
this very day because I just started working with a new research assistant who's an architecture student. And he had never heard of Cap Wigington who built many structures in the city of St. Paul. And he grew up in Minnesota and he's a young African-American man who aspires to be an architect. And it's not until his senior year in college that he ever heard of Cap Wigington because he applied for this job that I have to help a local historian, Frank White, who wrote, um, they played for the love of the game about uh, black baseball in Minnesota. Also a story that is not very often told um, since uh, in the days before he wrote his book and has been able to amplify that story, particularly through his connections to um, local baseball teams. Um, but the point is that I moved here in 2007 and in 2007, the uh, Twin Cities were getting ready to plan for the new light rail, the Green Line, which goes down University Avenue. And as a newcomer to uh, the Twin Cities, I didn't know the story yet of the construction of I-94 and how it came through the heart of the Rondo community, although I knew of such stories in other cities around the country. And it was through my work at Gordon Parks High School, which sits right on University Avenue, um, working with students there on uh, civic-oriented media projects, and then that developing with my colleagues there, Paul Krieger and Robin Hickman Winfield into more and more digital storytelling and interaction with elders so people could understand that the namesake of their school lived and thrived in St. Paul um, as a young artist and came back to the Twin Cities many times even though all of its doors were not open to him. Those kinds of stories really matter and that's why community-based archives matter because as my a uh, new research student, uh, Andrew said today, after I told him that someone had written a biography of architect Cap Wigington long ago, but guess what? It's out of print. And he just looked at me and he said, he made buildings that are still standing. He had a biography written and published about him by a historian with a PhD. And yet and still nobody knows his story, even a student in architecture in the Twin Cities in his senior year in the School of Architecture. And so I think that story for me kind of says it all why this kind of work is important because the institutional anchors have not been strong enough or have been absent. And so having community-based archiving and sharing and public circulation, I think, is really, really important to finally breaking this cycle of the kinds of gatekeeping and resource restriction that have made it hard for stories that one would think would be much more accessible to be accessible to a wider public. So I'll stop there and I will turn it over to Jojo Bell. Thank you, Dr. Suarez. And um, thank you, Cecily, for the introduction. Um, as she introduced me, I'm Jojo Bell, and I'm the founder of the African American Interpretive Center of Minnesota, um, really known as AAICM. And um, I'm a native Minnesotan, but I feel like I hadn't heard many Black history stories until really after high school and like a few years into college. And I feel like I had to really seek those out. Um, I think in Minnesota, we don't get 
Black Minnesota history taught to us early on. Um, I feel like maybe even Minnesota history, we don't really you know, dive into, especially at the junior high, high school level. And um, so you, I felt like I had to really search those things out instead of just having that background and all of the stories I learned later, I just kind of wondered, um, you know, are there other people who don't, who don't know some of these stories? And of course, and of course, there, there are people out there who don't. And um, so just to tell you how I came to found um, AICM. Um, so I finished my master's in LSU and I came back home and I really wanted to write Black Minnesota history. Um, and then also I just felt like some of these stories and some of them I'm writing, for example, like the life of Hilda Sims, um, I don't feel that those were being made public. So there's a side where there are academics, like Dr. Swart said, writing about um, these stories that we that are just kind of unknown or little known. But in terms of a public history um, area or avenue, we don't we haven't really explored that a lot um, in in our state and in this in the Twin Cities. Um, and in 2015, I did. Um, I presented a paper for the National Association of African-American Studies, and that was about a beauty contest in 1891 that was run here through the Appeal, which is one of well, our first and oldest Black newspapers. It's not um, in existence anymore, but um, and that kind of explored some of these things that we kind of still grapple with, like issues of colorism and what does it mean to support Black businesses and all that kind of um, all of those issues. And so I wanted to bring stuff like that, that I was just kind of researching on my own to a wider audience. Um, and I wanted to do that through public history. So kind of to backtrack, if people don't, aren't familiar with AICM, we do exhibitions and events that share Black Minnesota history. And um, some past events include, well, our first, exhibition actually was Minnesota's Black Past and Photographs. And I think we're gonna get into this when we talk about archives and Cecily might answer one of your questions later, but um, that the real aim and goal of that exhibition was to put Black Minnesotans who were here at a certain period of time in the proper context. Meaning, uh, I think there's this kind of myth or just kind of, view that we have of Minnesota as um, completely white, it's majority white, but completely white, especially in a certain periods. So it was really important for us to show that there were Black Minnesotans here before statehood, so before 1858 in Minnesota as well. Um, and so that's just kind of, that's like a taste of kind of what we try to do. And then in terms of community archives and creating archives, our latest exhibition, um, Outer Experiences, Black Life and Rural and Suburban Minnesota, that was actually based off of an oral archives that we created. So we interviewed 21 um, narrators about their experiences of growing up outside of the Twin Cities. Um, so yeah, um, again, thank you for having me. And with that, I'll throw it over to Tia Simone Gardner. Uh, thank you so much, Jojo. Um, 
And thank you so much, Jojo. And thank you uh, to Cecily and to the libraries for having me. I'm gonna share my screen. Um, as Cecily mentioned, uh, I grew up in Deerfield, Alabama. Um, I moved to Minnesota about eight years ago and have come and gone in between now and then. I am a practicing artist and have thought a lot about the archive and what it enables and what it limits um, from that position and from that the work of, of um, being, an, being an artist and, and a cultural producer. I've been thinking a lot about land as archive um, and working with my own family's history from Birmingham and Fairfield, Alabama, um, and, and thinking about um, this place that I am now. Um, a lot of the things that I've been sort of doing on have to do with geology, and thinking about the, the earth as the, as a ge and the geologic record. Um, that, that relationship to blackness and black space and, um, and violence um, and how it like each time we disturb the earth intentionally or not we we contribute to this record um, a few years ago as some of you know um, through the equal justice initiative Alabama um, created a museum that was uh, a, a, a lynching museum the lynching museum and and in each county um they were given the chance to reclaim their what are called their monuments um each county a bit of soil was taken from beneath places where people were hanged um and taken to this museum um began by brian stevenson and so what you see on the image in the bottom right are those containers and that there's been a ongoing you know um like series of these public reclamations where people can reclaim their monuments but there are a lot of counties that are not ready to acknowledge those histories and in some of the research that's been happening um you find out where some of these things come from and i learned that in the county that i'm from Jefferson County, um, one of the um, sort of hidden histories is, is that like a part of the relationship between extraction and lynching um, are, is mining, but that Birmingham, the magic city is, is the magic city because all of the things that you needed to make steel could be taken from the earth in that place. And that the, the site that is now the Birmingham Botanical Gardens, there were, it was a grave at a certain point and that there are um, possibly two bodies still underneath the, this sort of beautiful site um, that's on the, the, the Red Mountain um, south side of the city. And I think about like the place that I'm from um, that has this very green edge of trees 
lining it that to you know the unknown no unknowing eye appear benign but it's actually a color line to keep one side of the city away from the other um and that my family grew up inside that and i also grew up inside that place um and have been working with my mom um to do a visual and oral history about about it about the sort of um making of an industrial capital uh model city um, that they were never supposed to actually live in because they were black because we were black um i've been sort of trying to think about what it means to do that from here to there um, and have certainly been thinking about the river and i'm glad Catherine, that you started by talking about um cat whittington because a lot of those um, structures he built were also around water. And so like a lot of the ways that I have been and am trying to um, think about archive now are not necessarily um, through the, the sort of tracing of archival documents, but with the body um, and that the ways that we try to think through something like land and, and land acknowledgement should be with our body and um, with our feet. Um, so I think that that's maybe all I should, I should say, but I can definitely say more as we talk through um, Q&A about what these things mean and where we're gonna go. Um, so thank you all and I'll turn it over to Cecily. Well, thank you all um, for those wonderful introductions and um, entries into into your work. Um, you know, it's it's so interesting how you've you've all talked about um, sort of questioning what is an archive, what is it is in it, how are those things shared or failed to be shared, um, uh, Dr. Gardner. I love the idea of a geological record as an archival record. Um, and Dr. Squires, you you started with Cap Wigington, and you know even though his papers are collected in the Northwest Architectural Archives at the University of Minnesota or digitized for Umbrasearch African American History, what is what is the value and meaning of those materials if they're not spoken about, if they're not taught, if they don't become part of the stories that, that we tell and that we know. And um, similarly with what you were describing, um, Ms. Bell about, uh, you know, having sort of aspects of Minnesota history and black Minnesota Minnesotans erased from the story of the statehood of, of Minnesota um, and what it means to recover that. Um, and, and I've spent a lot of time thinking about how archival collections are, are always incomplete. You know, they're, they're only made up of what we've saved and what institutions have, have collected. Um, the materials that have survived um, the water and the floods and, and other nat natural disasters. Um, but in, in the context of black archives, I've been really struck by how the, the silences and the things that aren't there are structural, they're fundamental that, you know, there were hundreds of years when black people weren't allowed to be taught to read and write. Um, there were, you know, 
millions of enslaved people who never became doctors and politicians and artists and lawyers, the people who would have collected um, papers and their correspondence and whose papers would, would be in our collections now. Um, so I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about how you have navigated and how you try to represent um, archival silences um, that you encounter um, in your research and in your work. I think, um, if you don't mind if I go first, um, I think from that first exhibition I, that we had that I mentioned at the beginning, um, I think we tend to, um, as historians, kind of, we really want concrete names, information, dates, places. And I think for our exhibition, we included, and Cecily was talking about the archives, we included pictures where the person was for their museum label, it was just unidentified African-American or unidentified you know, African-American woman or male because even though we don't know their name or their backstory, um, it's really important again, for and especially for the exhibition that we did, to show that, yeah, this, you know, this photo is from, you know, the late 1800s. And yes, you can see that there's this Black family, even though they're not identified, but that they were here. So it's one way to kind of honor them and try to tell their story in the context of the state history, even though we don't have these concrete ideas about them. So that's just kind of one way we tried to navigate the silence in that first exhibition. Um, I would say there's another way of thinking about this question, which is trust. Um, I can say that one of the most, you know, rewarding experiences of working with the Halle Q. Brown archive was just seeing members of families, either children or grandchildren, um, bringing things um, to my colleague Don Selly um, and saying, you know, we trust you to keep this. And just thinking about how much um, lack of trust with other institutions that are that are supposedly tasked with keeping history for all Minnesotans, um, those boxes in the attics and the basements were not brought forward. And so thinking about um, you know families that have Bibles from the Civil War, you know, so so the. The idea that no one was collecting, I think, is something we should interrupt as well, because I think people collected, kept, and held, um, cherished many objects of their ancestors or their contemporaries, but because of the way that, um, you know, museums and libraries were not interested, except for as kind of trophy hunting or the kind of anthropological, almost zoological way of thinking about Black life that dominated um, at the, you know, in many parts of our history. Why would you bring those objects to an institution that saw you as subhuman or dismissed you or wouldn't even let you in their doors, right? Wouldn't like, wouldn't sell you a ticket. So I think there's a couple of things within that question about, um, are there collections that have never been shared because there was either nowhere to share them or they're being shared in different ways that aren't part of that um, storage mentality and um, the kind of checklist mentality that 
the logic of some archives of just the record keeping um, versus the living circulation of objects of care. So I think about my great grandfather's Bible that has everybody's birth date written in it, um, including my own and now my children's, right? So like that to me is part of an archive, but I'm not gonna donate it to, a, <laughs> you know, I'm probably not gonna donate it to a museum, but um, maybe one day I would, but I don't know why I would do that. So just thinking about how people engage in sharing history and then what parts of it have been institutionalized or available for institutionalization or even regarded as worthy of institutionalization, I think is another part of that picture um, because there are plenty of literate black folks throughout the history of this country who have been able to write things down. Um, but whether or not any institution of record considers that um, worthy, like when JoJo was talking about the appeal, you know, black newspapers, people didn't collect black newspapers for a really long time, but the people who did keep them, HBCUs and local libraries or people who had a stack of the spokesman recorder in their basement, um, you know, those kinds of things are really valuable. Um, and and, and there, that there's an opportunity there that having a community-based trusted space for those things to come finally, when people are ready to part with them, is, is I think an important thing to think about um, as well. Yeah, I mean, and I'll just say um, quickly, um, thank, yeah, thank you both for those um, really sharp thoughts. I um, am working with my family, you know, you, there, there's a lot of, um, trauma and going backwards like there's a lot of trauma and going backwards into particular parts of um, a black past and, and it's not that it's all traumatic but there's a way in which you form questions if you ask a question directly sometimes it's really hard for them to like pull that story up out of their heads or hearts or spirits but I found going at the question sideways, um, talking about things like architecture and, you know, the church parking lots and, you know, like the spaces that actually brought them joy um, that, you know, were absolutely inside of these, you know, um, uh, color bars, absolutely inside of those um, spaces of terror and horror. Um, we started to get at a lot of the, the history that had been around me all along, but like it, it didn't mean, you know, what was it like growing up inside of a color line? Like that's not necessarily a question. They would never have even thought of their everyday existence in those terms necessarily. If they're aware of it, it's not that they're in denial, but um, as, as, a, as a sort of like everyday way of being, you know, they remembered skating, you know, and um, playing in the, <laughs> playing, you know, making boats in the sidewalks in the, in the, when it rained and like things like that. And those aren't stories that I could have gotten if I had stayed along a very sort of, sort of narrow kind of archival question 
perhaps. Um, and so I think like that's been also my experience is like finding the, a way to a way into their very like situated memories um, required me to think with them instead of, you know, my very, like a sort of particular understanding of what I thought their experiences were um, of the past and present. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, please go, go ahead. To, yeah, Dr. Squires, what you said about, um, you know, trust. And I think even on top of trust, it's also who cares about these stories. So we're all on these panels because we, these stories are important to us and they're interesting to us. And we know that they're, they're interesting to other people as well. So how do we also, to answer your question, Cecily, how do we fill the silences in, in these archives? Because like you said, Dr. Scars, there's doesn't mean that because we're not, these stories aren't widely shared that these archives aren't there, it's who's looking for them. So I think also opening up, um, you know, inviting other black scholars and anyone else who wants to write about or research or do, you know, like T.S. Dr. Gardner's doing, you know, um, things related to the earth and that kind of research, just opening it up to um, kind of what we don't traditionally think as people who write and talk about these things too in our state as well. And and I, I loved, Dr. Suarez, did you want to say something? No, I was just gonna, you go ahead. I, I'll, I'll chag in probably. Well, I was just gonna say, I, I, I love the distinction that you're drawing between um, record keeping and the living circulation of, of cherished objects and heirlooms. Um, and, you know, I wonder if you could each uh, talk a little bit about um, sort of what, what brought you to community-based collections, the work that you've done um, in community-based collections that, uh, that exist outside of traditional archival institutions and, and perhaps that had to um, exist outside of archival institutions um, and how that work you know, changes or affects how you think about what an archive is, what, what knowledge is and what history is. Um, and then as an aside, and I'm, I'm sort of reticent to ask this because, you know, I, I don't want to put, you know, the, the three black scholars who are, who we've invited um, to speak to us tonight to tell us what to do as archival professionals, but yet there's also a question of how archival institutions like the University of Minnesota Libraries, like the Historical Society can um, uh, raise up uh, uh, community collections, how we can share resources or um, extend whatever we can that would help um, those institutions, those organizations survive the long years so that that trust um, that has been so well put can, can be maintained. Well, I'll answer your second question first. I think, um, you know, resource sharing is, is an interesting concept. Um, and I think it's an interesting concept because it, on the face, it sounds like it's an equal playing field, but it actually isn't. There's asymmetrical relationships um, with well-established, well-resourced institutions and, and, and community-based institutions in terms of money, right? In terms of space. Um, and so, and in terms of 
um, things like grants and fellowships where there's this impulse to say, we, we want to um, diversify, we want to think about diversity, inclusion, equality, but then the, the gatekeeping doesn't change. And I'll give a specific example. Um, grant writing is a very specialized skill. And so even when institutions develop grants that are specifically targeted towards people who have been traditionally excluded, if they use the same logics and language and criteria and the same kind of review boards to evaluate this new group of people who they're trying to open their doors to and open the coffers to, then you get the same result is that only people who think with those same logistical frameworks get included. Um, and so, you know, I've been involved in, I'm not saying that I, I, I should have gotten specific grants, but it took a lot of tries for the Halle Q Brown Community Archive to get support um, for its work. And part of it was just finally finding insiders who would, who would help. And that just doesn't feel good, right? That just doesn't feel good when you're invited to be on the panel, you're invited to be at the event, you're invited to be a commenter and like, oh, apply for this grant. And then you apply for the grant, it's like rejected. And so that dynamic I think has to shift and, and really organizations, um, philanthropy, and, and arts boards and, and libraries really rethinking like all of the levels of gatekeeping that go on for exchange to happen on an equal playing field. Because um, I think for me personally, I am very privileged to be a professor. Now I'm an interim dean. And so that helps me open certain doors and that's great, um, but it still only goes so far. And it's frustrating. It's frustrating and people feel like they're, they're having a bait and switch pulled on them. And that further erodes the trust that was barely there if it was there at all. So I feel like there's a bunch of different levels um, of gatekeeping that really need to be mapped out and then kind of attacked one by one so that folks can transform the processes, not just the intentions, because intentions only get you so far. Um, and I think the people who have the connections to communities also don't want to be involved with potentially opening up those communities to um, exploitation. And so giving up the reins and giving up the decision-making power in these kinds of exchanges is, is gonna be part of the process to build that trust and also to, to really let people stretch and, and show what they can do. Um, I, let's see. Okay. I think I can answer your first question first. Um, cause I, I think like Catherine, you nailed it. Um, I think my, my first sort of curiosities about archives came from literature like I was reading Toni Morrison and I realized after hearing her talk about her work that she was also a researcher because like I didn't know I didn't know historians you know as such like coming up and then I realized you know after a certain at, at a certain point 
um, that all of the kind of like art objects had massive amounts of like, if a, if a thing had value attached to it, that somebody had like accessioned it into a collection. And therefore also it had like massive amounts of research and data attached to it. Like I started learning these things in pieces um, and that those things started driving my own curiosity about where archives had come from. And like, they're deeply problematic. Like the, like archives come from, you know, colonization, like collecting exotic things. And then a single individual who used to be able to touch them, putting them into a museum and now nobody can touch them. <laughs> so like, like those kind of like odd things, like coming from, you know, like literature where it's like, you know, um, Toni Morrison is like amassing, like this, like looking at, you know, the Harlem Book of the Dead, like the, these are, these are archives or um, the Black Book, like she makes her own archive, like the Black Book. And then looking further back and sort of seeing, you know, like, well, these are sort of expert, like these are experiment experimentations that Black folks have come up with um, that are really distinct and different from like where that kind of phenomena began, um, which does get back to like the point that Catherine is getting at, you know, like when you want to when you think about working with community and also think about, you know, what archives can be or what they can do, um, there's a there's a a very fragile, it seemed like bridge to make. And, you know, are are you acting as the bridge or, you know, are you creating a bridge? You know, like those things are really fragile and delicate relationships and I you know I'd be also really curious to like hear you talk about that too Jojo um because there's you are asking you're asking people for their for their trust and um for their stories um and those things take time and you know relationship building takes time so um in the work that I've done like it, that has always been a a thing and an and a ongoing conversation around, you know, like what you consent to and when you can withdraw your consent and um, that the, there's not a sort of finite point at which it's like, it's done and complete. So um, yeah, those are my thoughts and yeah. Love yeah, I can, yeah, I can answer kind of in two parts too, because I want to circle back around to what you said. Um, and I think this kind of relates to Dr. what Dr. Suarez says too, but um, in terms of, of trust and you know, archives, I think you have to think about who the archives belong to. And I'm forgetting the name of this really famous photo of a former enslaved person. And I can't remember, I think it's Harvard University, but don't quote me. But I think they were in some, yeah, some kind of legal dispute with the family. Like who owns this photo, right? Like you, you know, this photographer took it and now you you own it in your collections, but this is my family member. So I think, you know, so you should give it back. So I think that's one thing um, in terms of making it more accessible is are there ways that, that 
institutions can give some of these archives back if they can find fine family members and then ask to borrow them or use them in exhibitions later. Um, I don't know if that would take away some of the power structures you, you were talking about, Dr. Squire, but um, that's one thing that I was kind of came up with what you said, Dr. Gardner. And then for, in terms of AICM, you know, it's kind of weird because we have to, we're kind of walking that line too, right? Like th these stories that everyone shared with us is 21 narrators. They're not our star stories, right? And they're not my stories. So I think I was lucky enough to get people who understood that, um, especially for black Minnesota history, these stories aren't shared widely. So I think because our 21 narrators had a deep appreciation um, about that question of whose stories get to get told, um, that they were really open to us. And I think because we were a Black organization trying to do this, you know, they were open. And, I, and I'm really grateful for that. But it was also, I also felt kind of like, well, I have to be delicate because this, these aren't our stories, these aren't their stories. So, and Dr. Gardner, what you were saying, even with your family, like asking certain questions in a certain way, you know, so that you're not being, you know, so that you're not exploiting in the way that you almost might follow larger institutions that have been kind of doing this because that's just kind of the model, right? That's what um, we have said you know, how to properly catalog and do and take oral histories and all this kind of thing. So how, so for us, it was kind of, kind of, a, you know, fine line to walk. And I did this project with our board member, Jeremiah Ellis as well. So, um, so it's something, you know, I think, again, I think we were lucky to have 21 narrators who understood that it's important for future archives, right, um, to have these stories. I, before we um, move into questions from the audience, I would, I would love it if, if each of you could reflect on your, your most cherished or happiest uh, experience or encounter in an archive, however, however defined. It's hard for me to, to remember mine, but so I'll share something that I, um, another artist found. Um, the artist, uh, Mindy and Keith Obadike did a project in which they were um, researching in Monticello and they found a bell that belonged to Sally Hemings. And so they made this like amazing sound piece from that bell. I mean, like, you know, the rarity of sort of getting to find that that object, but then also asking, like, well, can we ring the bell? Um, and then being able to make a like the sort of sonic, you know, work from that. That's like, you know, um allows other people into this this thing that no you know nobody knew that existed um and of course it's a, a servant's bell of course that's what it is um so it has all these other like meta narratives but um 
so I can't think of like my own but like that's one that's like very present in my mind all the time I can just say things that I've been working on currently um it's funny because now you know there are a lot of digital archives so a lot of a lot of these moments happen at home, but just hearing Black women, especially in their own voice, or even through the history of the Black press, or sorry, through the Black press. Um, so I'm currently writing an article about Ida Dorsey, who was a famous madam here around the turn of the century in Minneapolis and, and in St. Paul for a couple of years too. So just reading how the Black press responded to her, and that's kind of the thesis of, of the article I'm writing now, um, how, how her life was so complicated because in our present, like 21st century minds, we're like, oh, here's this madam who's really successful. She was the most successful madam in Minneapolis, but, uh, she also had a whites only policy. So, <laughs> you know, it's not someone you can really cheer for, you know, but then also reading about like one of her love affairs as well. So I had these moments where I was kind of laughing and just shocked and all these kind of things, but they happened at home. So um, in, a, in a digital archive. So that's just kind of what I'm working with presently. Um, I'll just go back to the story I started with today when I was working with my new research assistant who's an architecture student and he's been looking at Cap Wigington's drawings and just marveling at how much skill he had to have, you know, in 1920 to be drawing by hand, right? And just comparing his own experience learning AutoCAD and all these computer programs that can make something look like a hand drawing. And just him calculating in, as we're talking, how much time each of these drawings must have taken Cap Wigington and his assistant to do and how much care and how detailed they are and how beautiful they are and how he's just going through all these things. And again, at the same time, it's bittersweet because at the same time, he's also saying to himself, I've been at this university for three and a half years and I've never heard this man's name. You know, that to me is like the the tension of the joy of the the archives, right? As as these new models of of archiving are are coming out and new ways of thinking about how we bring people into history and make them feel more agentic in being storytellers, as as well as having stories to share um, after decades and decades of being not seen as someone who's worthy of having their story preserved, right? And so um, that kind of excitement and being able to see yourself in the archive, even as you're understanding that the politics of the archive have made it hard for you to see yourself in history, right? That sort of tension. Um, I just saw it unfold in real time in our, in our meeting today. And, um, you know, I continue to have those moments as I do my own work. Um, but I hope that we can make some shifts in the way we teach and the way we um, organize exhibitions at the university and other places so that we don't have so many generations of students saying, why didn't I know this until I'm almost done, right? What kinds of 
opportunities did they lose by not knowing those stories um, before the moment they kind of trip into an opportunity to know the story? Well, I, I welcome each of you to, to pose your own questions um, to each other, as well as to our audience to pose questions um, through the Q&A. We, we have a couple already. Um, so I'll start with um, a question that says, the jars of earth collected in Alabama punched me with its historic meaning and even more with its emotional intensity. And I was reminded of the art painted on the plywood that covered storefronts along Lake Street and how they were collected and preserved once the rebuilding started. Is there a growing trend or even the need for unconventional archives that expand the historic record beyond books and paper? Well, I mean, I think that I think that there has, you know, a lot of the things that um, that, and maybe I should let you two answer this, but I, I feel like a lot of the things that both Catherine and Jojo were talking about, like point to um, an established history of unconventional archives, you know, um, whether that's, you know. Um, uh, a family Bible or, you know, um, um, your mind. Uh, and so, yeah, I don't want to oversimplify the question, but I do think, you know, that there, there that is a long history when, um, you know, there's been, you know, reasons, a lot of reasons for not having sort of formal institutions um, to which you like give your stuff over to. Um, so I don't know, but maybe I'll let y'all like answer that. I mean, I guess for me, the question is to what end? For what audience? you know, to what end? So I know there was, a, I mean, the example that you gave, uh, the questioner gave about, about the, the murals on the plywood. Um, you know, I remember being approached by a couple of people who were like, can you, can you find any people of color who might help with this? And I just kind of felt a little bit taken aback by that question. And I understand where it was coming from, but then it made me have like 50 million other questions about what was the point of collecting and putting them into the storage. And then if they couldn't find any, you know, BIPOC folks to work with them on it, then what would happen to all the things they were able to collect because they had the resources? And what kinds of questions would be guiding the way they were figuring out which ones to even collect? So it just kind of, at that moment of high tension, I just kind of shut down because I, it was, it was, um, it was just, it was just this weird confrontation again of this tension around like, well, what, what is the goal here? Um, what's the goal? And that was something I couldn't really see other than we think this will be important someday, which just, 
I might agree on one level, but then on another level, I was like, but then the larger question is why don't you know anybody to talk to yet? And that was really, this is a really rough moment. So those are, I mean, it goes back to those trust issues and it goes back to um, the already existing unevenness of the relationships um, that thus, you know, they couldn't even look around their own staff and find people who might have the wherewithal to make that network happen. There's another question some, somewhat related. Um, have you seen predominantly white cultural institutions and archives, especially ones staffed primarily by white people tell black stories and or address silences well? Should I, should I take that as a no? Well, I don't know, necessarily know if it's a no. I'm just, I'm thinking of collaborations that I've seen that have gone well, but it's been, you know, black curators or things that have been part of it. So I don't really know what they mean by white institutions. Do they mean like an all white staff was the one controlling everything or, you know, and also my own level of knowledge of any particular exhibit as someone who just attends it might not dive that deep. So it's just a, it's a, I don't know, Tia, you might have a better example from the art world. No, I, I mean, I guess it's not a no. I guess I, what I was reading was um, um, Kayla Jackson's uh, note in the chat about their experience as a, as a black archivist. Um, which I'm so thank you, Kayla, for putting your putting that in the chat. Like, so we can also know that like there's another black archivist. And maybe you should say where you are too, so we can <laughs> like support you. Um, but no, that's I, I was also thinking about like there was so much in the past year about like um like, and I, I, you know, I don't, I, I take very seriously not using decolonization as a, as a metaphor, but like decolonizing museums um, and like what the work was that museums really needed to do um, so that there would be not just sort of surface level, um, exhibitions, uh, exhibitions, panels, um, galas, that, that there would actually be, you know, from the like staffing on up actual concrete change. And some of it did look like demanding that hires be made, institutions be, um, shuttered 
and or people give their stuff back. And so I don't know, like it's it's hard to answer that question. And, and maybe it's that like, to, to, to be honest, like it's not necessarily a question I'm interested in because like there's just like a lot of work to do. Like there's just like a lot of work to be done. So I'm like, maybe it's just not quite a question I'm, oh, hey, Kayla, so glad to have you, woohoo. Yeah, Kayla <laughs> just got hired at Holly Q. Brown this summer. Oh, that's so beautiful. I like was anticipating your coming and I'm glad that you're here. Um, yay. I think it's more the question, the qualifier of well. Um, I mean, I think those institutions do them well because again, all of the research and going over historical method, I'm just from, a, from my background, um, is, you know, they're done well, but the other question is, are we telling kind of the same stories? I think that's kind of one aspect of it as well. It's like, you can do something well, but I, but are you telling like a fuller picture of things? Or are we just talking about the same group of people or the same event that happened in, in Black history or in, in, in American history? So I think, yeah, I think the qualifier well might be, might be tough for us to, maybe that's why it's tough to answer. Well, there's a question. Um, how can students that go to the who go to the university directly help preserve the archives and bring awareness to the history of Black African Americans in Minnesota's history? Or students who don't go to the University of Minnesota? Take classes in African American studies in the Department of African American and African History. Um, yes, uh, it's it is, um, it might seem mercenary, but it's true. Getting more students in classes sometimes helps draw resources. Um, and that's where you can learn more about ongoing projects or things that people are doing um, from folks who have been holding it down for decades and who have deep connections to communities um, outside of the U. So I would say that's the first thing to do is support the department that is part of the University of Minnesota's history and drag the university kicking and screaming to, to actually get it done, right? Um, I think that's one really important thing to do is to acknowledge the expertise and effort that already exists at the university. Um, that would be my first thing for a University of Minnesota student is to take classes over there. Yeah, and I would say too, like, I think, I think pushing, you know, like, I think pushing enrollments up in FM is absolutely important. And I, I also think, like, that to find collaboration across, you know, in, in find collaboration in unexpected places, you know, like, so like I see some, and thank you so much, like for folks who have been, um, um, Mr. White and um, Cheryl, Cheryl for putting um, the links to Cap Whittington in the chat, because like there you have, you know, an architect who is not being taught in architecture, 
And like that is, you know, some, 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 some like demand of that, that something has been severed there that now it becomes the problem of, of African-American studies alone to teach this like history. And it is not like when you have someone who is working in their field, they should not be divorced from their field. Like that's, I think that that's not okay either. And so I think, you know, like where does, you know, like black folks like literally do everything, you know, like there's black scientists, there's black architects, there's black artists, you know, like there's black technologists, there's black chem, you know, like, like black folks do everything. And so like, I think finding ways to make connections between, you know, a history that we know is deep and, um, and, on, and ongoing that we sort of like think about like where, like this is a thing in art all the time that you talk about the abstractionist, you know, as black artists and never talk about them as abstractionists, right? Like, and I think like you have to do both. Like, I think you have to do both. Like, you know, if like there's ways that we should absolutely not divorce people from their interlocutors. And so I think, you know, to like, y'all, like students have to be good researchers too and have to ask questions like, why aren't we learning about, you know, black and native folks in this class? Like, because surely there are there's some. at least one. There, there's at least one. There's at least one, and there's probably the ten. Yeah. Well, what's interesting, T? I just want to jump in. Is that yeah, we're making the next step in the Cap Whittington exhibit is to create actually a, a an urban planning lesson plan for our master students at the Humphrey School. Like, why don't you know about Cap Wickington and that he worked for Parks and Rec and helped plan parks and the pavilion on Harriet Island and all these sorts of things. Why don't you know that? Um, we have, this is part of understanding how cities get made and how streets get named and how plans get laid over neighborhoods that are considered not historically important, right? They're not zoned in those ways, right? So. So this is part of a larger project. Just wanted to put, put a plug in there that you'll be able to take class in Humphrey someday. Um, but but I, I, I totally love that, Tia, just reminding people that asking the question, like, interesting that how there's just no nobody or just one in any class you take. Yeah, I think, yeah, Dr. Guy, I know what you were saying about research, but also you can add to the historical record yourself. So if you're in these programs, graduate programs, make it your dissertation, you find these, you know, unsung heroes or just people who have stories that are really important to, you know, some kind of local and national theme, you know, you can add to those as well um, and kind of bring them out of, out of the archives too. Do you have any advice um, that you would give to a uh, Black recent MLAS graduate interested in becoming an archivist in the community archive?
I think my um, my my thought is to like plug in. My thought is to just like plug in where you are. You know, like my my experience of moving into a place that I you know like I didn't like. I'm not. This isn't where I'm from, and so like you have to find community and like when you plug in to um a place you know humbly so because like you don't you know like you have to build trust with people um people will guide you where they where they need you and where you can be most useful to them and so like I think you know show up to things you know like not with your own agenda show up with just like trying to learn and start learning like finding elders like finding good elders is, is such a gift it's like such a gift um because they'll always tell you like when you're being too nosy and when you're moving too fast or when you're moving too slow also because I've also had elders tell me that and so like you you know but I think like play like that's been my personal like experience is just plugging in through whether that's through my my experience has been through um youth organizations um but um I, that can that can look like a range of things it, 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 it like what i what i know is that like there's always um like black folks are infinitely creative and always doing stuff and so like if you find one organization that might not need you <laughs> like there's they'll probably they can probably direct you elsewhere um and you might just want to hang out with people for a little while until you you know find a groove um but yeah Well, um, for our, our last question, um, uh, one, one of our audience members writes, thank you for your individually valuable insights. Where is the best way for us to follow your work and continue learning from you? Well, Kayla just added herself in the chat as the new Hallie Q. Brown archive archivist. So, um, you can find her at halliqbrown.org. Um, but um, for me, again, I'm I am I am in a lot of places. You can always just reach out to me at the U, and um, I'm working with uh, a group of folks right now in the Cap Wigington exhibit. Frank White, who has his website on Black baseball history and African Americans in sports from the Rondo neighborhood, which is just amazing. He's working on this second book. Um, in terms of uh, the, the work we're doing on Cap Wigington, we hope to be debuting a story map and then start to work on the curriculum um, in the spring. Um, and also um, hoping, and I saw Amelius White in the chat, <laughs> that we'll finally be able to debut the curriculum, which is gonna be for um, K through three. We work with two amazing teachers uh, from Minneapolis who created their own web framework for teaching black history and they're helping us teach the story of Tony Stone, um, African-American woman who played in the Negro Leagues in the, man, the men's teams, and um, Debbie Montgomery, local legend, who was also an amazing sportswoman 
um, and making sure that students understand why there's a ball field named for one and a street named for the other when they take their bus to school. So that hopefully we'll be able to put out um, in new uh, humanities engagement space at Pillsbury Hall sometime in the coming year once we get it all together. We're in a few places. Um, right now, I think we're having technical difficulties with our website. So I think the best place would be on Facebook. So the African-American Interpretive Center of Minnesota, AAICM, um, and also Instagram as well as AAICM. Let's make sure that's the right one. Sometimes they have to add an N, but try AAICM or AAICMN. Um, I am um, working on stuff a lot, like it feels like a lot of stuff. Um, I, you can find me on my personal website, which I'm, you know, constantly rebuilding, but it's tiasimonegardner.info. Um, you can also find me on Instagram at indigeo negro, N-D-G-E-O. N-E-G-R-O, um, and I post semi-regularly there about things I'm doing. Well, thank you all so much. Um, thank you to our audience for your great questions. Um, it's, it's really been um, a pleasure and a, a privilege to, to be in conversation with you tonight. I'd just like to um, echo my thanks as well. Um, I think Dr. Gardner said it uh, really well. We have a lot of work to do. Um, I hope you can um, enjoy it and I hope you can join us for the next two parts of the Friends Forum series on amplifying Black narratives. On October 28th, we'll host a virtual panel discussion about Black publishers and bookstores. And on November 18th, we will, fingers crossed, host an in-person event at the Capri Theater on the creation of Black narratives. This evening's program is sponsored by the Friends of the Libraries. And if you're already a friend, thank you so much. Um, and I will say thank you to the friend um, chair, Amelia White, who has been um, just so an instrumental in, in helping us this year. Um, if you're not yet a friend, please consider being one. Uh, you can find a link to the Friends on our library's news website, continuum.umn.edu. And thank you all for joining us this evening and for giving us um, lots to think about and lots to do. So thank you. And thank you very much, Cecily, for moderating today. Good night, everyone. <laughs>